He is going to teach this morning uh, what we need to know, enlighten our minds. We continue our study in the book of Matthew. It's great, really, honor and privilege to work our way through this book to get a full understanding of uh, Jesus' teachings um, in Matthew's record of it. Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as a bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. We use the subject this morning, the exclusive way of salvation. The exclusive way of salvation. Christian faith is not just one faith tradition among many, as some people in our culture seem to think. Christian faith is unique. It is unique in its origin. That is, it is from the living and true God who discloses himself in the Word of God. Orthodox biblical Christianity is one of a kind in that it presents the only valid way to God. It is unique in that it provides the only Savior, the God-man, Jesus Christ, as the way to the true God. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says this, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The gospel of Jesus that he preached was, or is, unique. Nothing can be added to it. It stands alone as the saving message that God has given. It needs no props. It needs no help. It needs nothing. All one needs to do is repent and believe the gospel. During our Lord's earthly ministry, he confronted the false religion of Judaism. And that religion of the Jews was at odds with the truth Jesus preached. Judaism was a religion, now get this, of works righteousness. The way of salvation was, by their thinking, human effort. The chief practitioners and promulgators of this deceptive and deadly teaching were the scribes, the Pharisees, and the rabbis and their multitudinous volumes of tradition. They thought that they were already righteous. They thought they didn't need forgiveness of sins. They didn't see the need for repentance. And you really can't understand verses 14 through 17 without understanding this reality about these people with whom Jesus discussed what we read in our text. You see it back in verse 13 when we were there a few Sundays ago. Uh, verse 13, the latter part of the verse, it says, For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Sinners. 
Jesus wasn't saying I, there were no righteous who did not need to be saved. What he was saying sarcastically, there are some people like the Pharisees who thought they didn't need to be saved because they were already righteous. They were self-deceived. The righteousness wasn't the true righteousness of God. It wasn't the righteousness that saves. It was self-righteousness. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the self-righteous to salvation. Self-righteous won't listen because the self-righteous don't think they need the salvation that Jesus offers. They didn't think they need the repentance, as Luke puts it, that Jesus commands. The one who thinks he is righteous and spiritually safe without Christ is actually lost and desperate and in desperate need of him. Here's some distinctives between the gospel of Christ, what he preached, and those who promote a self-righteous system, including Judaism that Jesus confronted and undermined during his earthly ministry. They were thinking they were righteous. And they were proud of their supposedly exalted status. Luke tells us this. Of course, self-righteous people think they're proud because they think they've accomplished something on their own relative to their relationship to God. And so that puffs them up. Jesus, however, proclaimed the need for humility. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, we're told that. One must be humble if one is proud, thinking they're all that. They've achieved certain things. They have a status spiritually. They won't humble themselves, recognizing they're a sinner in need of divine grace. They focus on externals, these proud people. Rituals, ceremonies, and outward observance of the law, the law of God. As long as they thought they kept the outward aspect of it uh, that could be seen by men, therefore they were righteous. Paul fell into that delusion too. Remember in Philippians chapter 3, he was, as to the law, blameless, he claims. Of course, he recognized that the blamelessness was because he only knew the law externally. But when he came to understand the internal reality of the law, he died. He understood, oh, I have not met the divine standard. Jesus, however, in his teaching, the distinctive of the gospel, he focused not on externals, but on the heart. The heart. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? The heart, the heart, the heart. Now, the passage before us is an appropriate one in this age. It's just not appropriate for Jesus' time 2,000 years ago. It's appropriate now for the reality is that men are the same. They don't change whether they live in Israel or in Norman. See, what the deal is today in this age, this is how they see it. There's diversity of belief, openness to other religious views, and inclusions. Inclusion. These are considered primary virtues, religious virtues. Ah, what do you believe, brother? Well, all right, come on. What do you think, sister? Well, ah, come on. We're just one big, happy, inclusive family. It's virtuous in the mind of those who affirm and articulate such thinking. Jesus, in his Confrontation with the religious leaders over the question of fast, fasting here in our text set forth the uniqueness and exclusivity 
of the gospel. We see this unfolded, and we'll use the heading for the unfolding of the first point, the inquiry, the inquiry. You notice it says in verse 14, the disciples of John came to him. The disciples of John, of course, John the Baptist. Uh, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's significant about this, they had not become disciples of Jesus at this point. And John the Baptist had told them, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist's whole ministry is to point point men to Jesus to trust him. But these disciples have said, No, they had not come uh, to faith in Messiah. Though John himself had denied that he was the Christ. They came and asked him, remember that? He said, no, 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 I'm not the Christ. But the one who comes after me, I'm not worthy to untie his thongs. I baptize you with water, but he baptized you with spirit and fire. So these come, and they're allied with the Pharisees. Notice, why do we, speaking of themselves and the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast Hmm. three legs held up the stool of orthodox Judaism in Jesus' day prayer almsgiving giving to the poor and fasting the topic of our text those three legs held up the stool of Judaism All these were done publicly and ostentatiously to impress men, to be seen by them. Remember, in in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had to address this. They engaged in these public displays of piety. They prayed openly in such a way that people could see them. They gave to the poor so that people could see them and pat them on the back. They fasted. They, They made sure everybody knew they were fasting. They were suffering in their fasting. These religious acts were done to show their piety, not for God, but for men. And what that did, that betrayed that they had no genuine piety or love for God at all. It was just a religious show. And that happens today, too. People can put on a facade. People can pretend to be something that inwardly they're not. It's a front. Remember, I remember growing up, people used to use a little phrase, uh, he or she's fronting. It was a facade. In the spiritual realm, that's the reality. There's no truth in their spiritual engagement or activity. Jesus denounced this religious hypocrisy in the Sermon on the Mount, as I've just mentioned. Such practices of things to impress others were by religious externals. And religious externals, if that's all it is, if it is done for that reason, falls short of the divine standard of righteousness. Now here the topic is fasting. And the Pharisees, they fasted twice a week. Luke 18 I think it's verse 12 twice a week they fasted 
And extra biblical indication tells us those two days that they fasted were Monday and Thursday. Remember the man in Luke 18? He let it be known that he fasted twice a week. That's one of the things that separated him from the tax collector. He was better because, look, I fast twice a week. This guy eats all the time. That was the implication. But in the Old Testament, God only commanded one fast, and that fast was beyond Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. They would afflict themselves, afflict their souls as they repented of their sins and recognized that God, through the high priest and the covering that would happen there in the Holy of Holies, would forgive their sins of the nation for one more year. They would fast then. God commanded it then. Other times of fasting in the Old Old Testament are seen as well. They were spontaneous and associated with grief, mourning, and humbly seeking God. They were genuine fasts by genuine believers. For those things I just, because of the things I just mentioned. But these guys were just fasting as a ceremony a religious ceremony. And they come to Jesus and say, why do your disciples do what they do? Why don't they fast? See, this rubbed them wrong. This outraged them. They were ignoring the traditional fast. And so they decided to ask Jesus about it. They continue to eat and drink. And how they knew this is simply because they remember they had been in Matthew's house. Jesus' disciples feasting, not fasting. Matthew had become a follower of Jesus. Matthew had been redeemed, his sins forgiven, and he invited all his friends. Remember that? And they had this big feast that Matthew gave to honor Jesus so his friends could hear about Jesus. So they become followers of Jesus like him. And they all knew about it. So why are you doing this? You're violating the tradition. Boy, you're talking about missing the point. Here's a man that's come to faith in Messiah, and they're worried about why y'all eating. That's what uh, external religion's about. It always focuses on man-made stuff that has no connection to the spiritual reality. Hmm. What does Jesus do in this inquiry? He interprets it for them why they did it. He defends his disciples in light of the truth. Verse 15. The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as a bridegroom is with them. Can they? The structure of the question is to elicit the obvious answer. No. Jesus uses the figure of a bridegroom for himself, the same language that John the Baptist used for our Lord Jesus when he called him in John 3, 29, called himself, that is, John the Baptist called himself a friend of the bridegroom. He was saying, I'm the best man of the bridegroom. The bridegroom, Jesus, in John's uh, usage of the term. The bridegroom was a key metaphor for God in the Old Testament, of course. But the Old Testament never directly uh, referred to Messiah as the bridegroom. However, uh, in the New Testament, the church is depicted as the bride of Christ in several places, Revelation 19 and Revelation 20 and Revelation 22. 
that being said, let me add this. Jesus' point here is that it is inappropriate to mourn as long as a bridegroom is with them. Think about it. Who goes to a wedding to mourn? Well, I know there's some exceptions. <laughs> the general, generally speaking, we understand weddings are a time of feasting, celebrating, uh, festivities. It's a time of joy. Not mourning. That's why they were not fasting. They had no reason to fast, no grief, no mourning, no sorrow. There with Jesus Christ. May I add a, a biblical thought here? There is a time for everything under the sovereign ordering of events by God. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 say this A time to weep, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. This time, as they were with Jesus Christ, the time was for joy. Jesus was the center and cause of their joy. Think about it. Their sins were forgiven. They were rightly related with God through Messiah. Jesus has the words of eternal life, as Peter said. He is the Holy One of God in John chapter 6, verses 69 through 70, as Peter said. Of course there would be joy. Feasting is like a wedding. Feast is like a wedding celebration, being with Jesus Christ, Messiah. You know, the reality is Jesus is our source of joy. Do you know, even in a life when there's sorrow, there is joy, ultimately because of our relationship with Christ? You know that, don't you? You experience that. Things haven't been going the way you'd like. There is grief, but yet there's joy because Jesus has made things right between God and us. That's something that belongs to Christians. The world knows nothing about that. He is the reason for our joy because of what he has accomplished redemptively for us. You've experienced it, have you not? The joy that comes even in the midst of sorrow. I think about the reality because of what Jesus did one day we're going to leave all our sorrows behind. We know that for sure. But in this life, there will be times of sorrow. Verse 14, 15, the B portion, our Lord continues. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast. This is a prophecy by Jesus concerning his crucifixion and death. The words taken away translates a single Greek term, 
to suggest a violent end. They will come and take Jesus away, snatch him away, take him off to crucify him. They'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. They will not want to eat then. They'll be mournful. They will be sorrowful. Later on, a couple of years or so, in the upper room, the evening before his crucifixion of being taken away or snatched away, Jesus is teaching his disciples. The next day, of course, you know he's going to be crucified and die. And he tells them about the, their forthcoming sorrow. And then the ensuing joy <laughs> due to his death and resurrection. Sorrow is coming when they take him away and crucify him. He dies, he's buried, but joy comes when he's resurrected. John chapter 16. So that's the inquiry. Jesus makes an allusion to his death, the earliest one, we believe, in this gospel. But then, at the inquiry, there's the, there are the illustrations. To teach the uniqueness of the gospel, Jesus provides a slice of life in two illustrations to show that the gospel is incompatible with Judaism or any other system of works righteousness. Slice of life. He, he pulls out of what is commonly done among the Jews. It's just a part of life that they would do and they all understood. Here's the master teacher saying, let me illustrate the incompatibility of my gospel with your system of Judaism. Let me start off first of all telling you that what I preach and what you believe cannot mix any more than he wouldn't say it, oil and water. He knew all about it, created, but he didn't use that. They know that about that, I suppose, but they couldn't. Jesus did not come to improve Judaism, but to undermine it. See, there's no saving reality in any works righteousness system. Anytime anybody thinks that somehow they have to contribute to their salvation, they've just nullified grace. It's either grace or it's not. It's not grace and something else to save you. No, it's grace plus nothing. Judaism, they're all ready to say, listen, let me help. Oh, I can just do it myself. The original DIY people, do it yourself. There's no saving reality in any works-based religious system. Actually, it's deadly, and it leads its adherents to eternal hell. Here's the first slice of life Jesus extracts from the common experience of people, what's commonly known by them uh, in this illustration. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Hmm. 
no spiritual seamstress, seamstress would put a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. She said, I'm not doing that. After the patched garment is washed, the new patch shrinks and pulls away from the garment, making a worse tear than before. See, here's the point. In essence, the gospel cannot connect with salvation by works. Grace and works cannot connect. Jesus' gospel of forgiveness and cleansing cannot be attached to the old and external traditional self-righteousness and ritualism of Judaism or any other religious system. Whatever it is. Our contemporary times are back in the first century. Jesus continues illustrations. Second slice of life. Nor do people put new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise the wine skins burst and the wine pours out and wine skins are ruined. Let's stop and talk about it for a moment. In Jesus' day, wine was stored in animal skins. Mm. They were specially prepared for that purpose. The chosen animal's head and feet were cut off. The carcass was skinned. And sewing up the skin, the fur side was out. (laughs) The orifices were sealed off except for the neck. The skin was tan. You know, those people do leather working and that sort of thing. It was tanned with special care. Why did they tan the skin? To minimize disagreeable taste. Because you don't want to pick up your skin. You go, hmm, okay, a squirrel. <laughs> Not so good. <laughs> Let alone taste it. Why, why would they pour it in? As Jesus says, here, new wine into old wineskins. In time, the skin became hard and brittle. If new wine still per- fermenting were put into such an old skin, the buildup of fermenting gases would split the brittle container and ruin both the bottle and the wine. the old form of Judaism cannot contain the new wine of gospel truth these illustrations show that the new situation introduced by Jesus could not simply be patched onto old Judaism and poured into the old wines of Judaism not at all can't patch the gospel onto any system of works righteousness. We always must keep them separate because false religion has no role to play in true religion, the gospel. None. 
therefore have no partnership, no business with anybody who proclaims any truth they claim, spiritual truth that gets you to God, that excludes Christ in his gospel. Don't have anything to do with it. It's a lie from hell. And I'm not the first to say it. In fact, that's what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, they're born of hell. False religion is not called false for nothing. It damns people's souls. So you always must be mindful to maintain the exclusivity and distinctiveness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's impossible to mix the gospel of grace in any system of works righteousness. Eleven, Romans eleven six, Galatians chapter five four. You can check those out. Now, one more note I need to make here: Jesus is not talking about the Old Testament. He's not talking about nullifying or abolishing the Old Testament. He's talking about a false religious system. But not the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the word of God. Notice in Matthew chapter 5 verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away. Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Didn't come to destroy the law. Get rid of the law of God. No, he came to fill that in various ways. We won't go into that now, but that's the reality. He's, he came to undermine the deception of religious externalism. But you'll notice in verse 17 in our text, it says, But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. What are, are the both being preserved? The new wine and new wineskin. Now I want to share with you a text that's not here. Jesus said it and Luke records it because the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, include this teaching. Mark chapter, uh, Luke chapter 5, if you look there with me, an illustration there, share something with you. Why would people reject the forgiveness of Christ? Why, why would they reject his grace? And keep with that which is harmful to them. Luke chapter 5, verse 39. Verse 39, it says... And no one, Jesus is speaking, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says, the one who wishes for new, the old is good enough. (laughs) Wow. Those who reject the gospel of Christ and cling to the false system of works righteousness are compared to people who are content with old wine they've been drinking and drinking and have no taste for the new. You see what false religion does? It deadens the senses. When a person has gone far enough into the drinking experience, the drinker doesn't care about the taste. He just says, give me some more of it. And that's just what Satan loves. 
the slosher drink he just drinks and drinks Satan then blinds the minds of those people who are like that so they cannot see the gospel of the glory of Christ like wine drinkers people who say the old is good enough they're sloshing a familiar drink people stubbornly cling to their comfortable religious traditions and have little interest in the fresh saving truth of the gospel I uh, was told by a man who ministers to Roman Catholics and he himself was a Roman Catholic for years God saved him went to Dallas Seminary and now he's been ministering Catholics for 35 years or so he and his wife would go and talk to priests share the gospel with them he even shared with his father his father was a Catholic and died in a sense he said nah Catholic dying anyway went to a priest and the priest was angry with this man I'm talking about who's trying to share the gospel with the man said I'm a Catholic and I'm a dire Catholic he loved the old wine of false teaching he's comfortable with it a lot of people like that they like their religion they refuse the saving grace of God they say the old is good enough For those who refuse to live religion, there is no hope for salvation. Because if you refuse to acknowledge you're a sinner, you need divine grace for salvation, you need Christ, there's no hope. You doom yourself. Thank God if you're saved this morning that he got through to you. You are a drinker of new wine. you have the gospel of grace and you've been changed forever thereby we have to present the exclusive way of salvation don't compromise it proclaim it to compromise it is to undermine it you proclaim it and let God save those whom you will Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the exclusivity of the gospel of Christ. The exclusivity of Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. There is no name given unto heaven whereby men must be saved. We thank you for these profound truths. Thank you for opening our eyes that we see and believe and are yours we pray for any in this room this morning who need Christ they need to abandon their religion or if they're non-religious they need Christ for their soul's sake open their eyes bring them to him anybody who's listening on via live stream and they recognize that they don't belong to you transform their souls by your grace. 
We pray you do these things for your own honor and for their joy, everlasting joy. It comes with knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. These things we pray in his glorious name, 